Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So first question we have today is what is the role of PTH or parathyroid hormone? And I put this question on the page because I was going over the lab practice questions with a lot of my one-on-one students today. And almost every time I was asking about parathyroid hormone without abbreviating it, they were answering the question incorrectly with thinking that it has to do with hyper and hypothyroidism. So I thought, of course, this would be a great one to talk about on the page. So when we're thinking about PTH, parathyroid hormones, what we want to be thinking about is that this is a hormone, and remember, hormones are sending signals, and this is going to be very involved with stimulating calcium release from the bones. So the disease state we really care about PTH is especially with renal, because in renal disease, you're going to have an increase in the PTH. And so it's telling the bones to release calcium, release calcium, release calcium. And then this can cause you to have renal-related bone disease. So oftentimes in renal patients, we're actually taking medications to help suppress the amount of, to help suppress the amount of PTH that they're having so that we're preserving, we're preserving their bone health. So make sure with the hormones, if they're abbreviated like PTHs, that you're taking advantage of, you will not taking advantage, that you're writing down the, the abbreviation and also the real name because that's going to help you. This is also something too that comes up a lot for other things like um, the community programs. A lot of them are abbreviated and, you know, when you're in the heat of the exam, it's hard to remember them. So always anything that has the abbreviation write out the full name with the abbreviation and be studying it together so that you're not getting a question wrong because you're like, oh my goodness, you know, what is, you know, the NSLP, right? National School Lunch Program. You guys would know it if it's written out, but if you're reading the abbreviation in the moment, you're like, ah, what is it? So always studying things together. And this will also come in handy to when you're thinking about when you're thinking about the management theories as well too. Okay. So next one we have a TPN question. TPN's been a hot topic this week. And so being a CNSC dietitian, you guys know I love to talk about TPN. And TPN's really tricky because a lot of you guys did not have a good amount of exposure depending on where you did your internship. Sometimes they didn't have TPN patients. And also, depending on the state, the dietitian role in TPN is very, very diverse across the United States. So like, for example, up here in Boston, CNSC dietitian will completely write the order and then we submit it to pharmacy. They pretty much just double check the safety and then it goes out to the pharmacy to be made. Versus in some other states, like one of my friends who lives in Tennessee, she was telling me in her hospital, the dietitians really aren't, 
they don't do much. You know, the farm, they're doing calorie proteins, but the pharmacists are going to be doing all or So just super very. So especially if you didn't get a lot of exposure nutrition support, the nutrition um, support course is really, really helpful because it'll go over not only TPN tube feeds, but also the math and also like situational questions with it. So here's a tube feed question for us. Actually, sorry, TPN question for us. So we have a patient is receiving 600 milliliters of 50% dextrose, 400 milliliters of 40% amino acid, and SMOC lipid is 20% at 7 milliliters per hour. How many calories is this TPN providing? So with this and all the math, you want to write it out. So often I'm having students who are getting math wrong because they're just throwing it all in their calculator and it's getting lost and it's like, oh shoot, I just typed something wrong. So especially with the TPN, going line by line is really, really important. So let's start with dextrose. So I have 600 milliliters and 50% of that is dextrose. So I do 600 times 0.5. That's going to tell me that there's 300 grams. And remember when we're thinking about TPN, it's like a one-to-one -one ratio for grams and protein for milliliters. So 300 milliliters would be 300 grams of dextrose. And dextrose in TPN is 3.4 calories per gram. So it's, you know, remember, TPN is wonky, except for protein. Protein's the same whether it's a sandwich, tube feed, or TPN, four calories per gram. So with the dextrose, I'm going to be getting 1,020 calories. And then we have the amino acids. So it's 400 milliliters of 40% amino acid. So we're going to be doing the same exact math. So 400 times 0.4 is 160 grams times 4 calories per gram is going to be 640 calories. Okay, we got that. And now for the most hated part of the TPN, the lipid. So with the lipid, you guys need to keep in mind my favorite saying, keep your units tight and get it right. Think about the fat is super different than everything else because the fat is not in calories per gram for TPN. It's in calories per milliliter. So 20% fat is going to be 2.0 calories per milliliter. 10% fat is going to be 1.1 calories per milliliter. So I would write that down. Okay, two calories per milliliter. And so to get the calories, I need to cancel out the milliliters. So I need total milliliters. Wait, this one is saying seven milliliters per hour. So I define total. If they are not telling you otherwise, assume it's 24. So we do seven times 24. We're getting 168 milliliters of fat times two calories per milliliter. So I'm getting 336 calories from fat. So I add that up with my calories from dextrose and from protein that I found before. And I'm getting 1996. What a great year. Great vintage. Um, so that's how I'd be solving that. So definitely if TPN is tricky for you, going line by line like we just did, and then also always with the fat, remembering that they can kind of mix you up a little bit. So you want you want to make sure 
you're going slow. And if this is a new topic, do not be afraid to go slow. The only way to get more efficient is to really understand these topics and then you're gonna work on getting more efficient. If you are just blowing through the topics, it's gonna be confusing. So especially as you're going through, keeping a list of your trouble areas and looping back on them, taking classes on them, asking questions on the Facebook page, super duper important. So we just talked about how annoying fact can be, which led me to post another fact question on the exam. So here we have, if my TPN has 550 calories from fat, how many milliliters of 20% IV fat emulsion do we need? So here, again, the first step with my fat is to kind of pause and say, okay, 20% is going to be two calories per milliliter. So, you know, I can think about this a few different ways. And remember with the math, you really want to do the way that makes most sense for you. The only time I worry about your math method is when you're like, Dana, I threw some things in the calculator and it worked. I don't know why. So, but if you're doing it a slightly different way than me and you're like, okay, but I know how these pieces work, how they interact, go ahead. So for this one, again, keeping my units tight, getting it right, I need to cancel out calories. So if I do 550 calories divided by two calories per milliliter, that's going to tell me that I need 275 milliliters. So this math can be tricky, but that's why kind of taking a pause can be super duper helpful. So again, a lot of people in the comments on that one were like, I'm confused. I'm not good at TBN. That is why you guys are here. And something important to keep in mind, especially for those of you guys who have taken the exam before, is you want to make sure that as you're going into your next attempt, you're doing something differently. So, you know, trying to answer these questions, listening to the podcast episodes, really trying to understand, this is kind of a really, really important piece too. Okay. We're keeping the theme of math with the next one. A hospital food service uses FIFO, right? First in, first out inventory method. On May 1st, the hospital purchases three cans of pears at $6.66 each. On May 15th, they purchase six cans of pears at $6.72 each. On May 31st, they purchase nine cans of pears at $6.78. When the inventory was checked on June 1st, it was determined that 12 cans of pears have been used. What is the cost of goods sold or COGS for the 12 cans used? So this one, it more gets confusing because we all hate a paragraph long question. But this is when you kind of want to back out and almost imagine you're thinking like what's, what's going on. So we're saying I'm using first in, first out, which means I'm using the older cans first and I'm using 12. So you almost want to think like you're shopping and like scanning. So I need 12. So I let me look at the oldest cans. Okay, I have three cans at six sixty-six each. So I take them, beep beep beep, scan them. Okay, really great impression of the cashier. I know. Okay, so I still need nine more. Okay, on May the main fifteenth cans, I can get six of those. So I scan six, and they're each seven, not seven. Sorry, six seventy-two. Okay, then I only need three more cans. 
So I scan only three, not all nine, of the May 31st ones that are 678 each. So that math would be three times 666, six times 672, and then three times 678 would get you to the total of $8.64. And remember, some of the math is like kind of like just regular math where it's like there's not an equation, but you need to have nobility and understanding of the topics, which is why doing a class like the math boot camp is really, really helpful because we start by laying down the basics too. Next one we have is domain one, counseling. So in a counseling session, my patient is discussing that he is not checking his blood sugars with a glucometer. The patient reports that he feels like re the readings he gets would not help him to manage his blood glucose. This is an example of what? And so we're having perceived severity, perceived barriers, perceived susceptibility, and perceived benefits. And this is the type of question where if immediately going into this, before you read the answer choices, you were like, um, I'm not really sure, totally okay. But once you read those answer choices, what you should what you should be thinking about for sure is going to be that you're thinking about the health belief model, right? So what we want to be thinking about here is where does this fall into it? He's saying, you know, that these readings, you know, are not going to, they're not going to help him, right? So that's looking at the perceived benefits, right? He's like, there's none. I'm going to take my blood sugar and it's not going to tell me anything, right? Versus when we're thinking of examples of perceived susceptibility, that would be someone saying like, oh, I like my dad has diabetes and he got BKA when he didn't check his blood sugar. Perceived barriers would be this guy saying, I don't even have testing strips to take this. Perceived susceptibility would be him saying, you know, like, oh, you know, I don't really think this is going to happen to me. I'll be fine. I'll feel if my blood sugars are high and just eat less. So the health belief model is one of the things that is not well explained in Inman. And what we want to be thinking with these four points of the health belief of the health belief model is that I'm not asking my patient this, right? Like, I'm not like, what do you think your perceived susceptibility is or perceived risk? But as we're talking with him, right, I'm kind of being like, okay, okay, like, let me kind of tally this down because I'm kind of loading statements of what the patient is saying into this model is going to help me to be like, okay, you know what? He's telling me he doesn't see benefit. Let me, let me, you know, kind of explore that more too. Oh, so the data you get isn't helpful for you at all. What is helpful in you managing your blood sugars? So that's a domain one counseling, um, domain one counseling topic. All right, next we've got a question about poop. We love that as dietitians, and I always laugh because even my private practice patients are always like, is this okay for me to talk about my diarrhea? And I'm like, please, I love it. I talk about it all day long. All right, so yeah, this student was saying, um, for smelly floating stool, is that stool, is this fat metabolism? Um, she was a little confused on some questions she's been getting. So that like bowel, you know, I guess it's all you know, poop. So it's all not going to smell great. Um, but like the oily floating stools with like a particularly sour smell of 
foul smell. This is going to be our steatorrhea, our fat malabsorption. I always like to tell my patients that, like, if they're seeing oil in the stool, it's that's a really great source of kind of observation to see fat malabsorption. A lot of time I don't even do like a test on them. I just kind of ask them, I'm like, do you see any oil with your stools? You know, and it's really easy for them to tell. Versus when we're thinking about other types of diarrhea, like osmotic diarrhea, right? This is going to be from food you're eating. So like you're lactose intolerant, right? Um, if you're lactose intolerant, though you're not digesting the lactose, that's going to bring in the water, diarrhea. You're having something high in like sugar alcohol. So like a lot of my patients, they'll be like, well, sugar causes cancer, so I can have sugar. And then they'll eat like a whole bag of sugar-free gummy bears. And then everyone's like, they probably have C. diff. And I'm like, no, they probably just ate this whole bag of sorbitol. Huh. Then we have um, secretory, which would be more like our C. diff type diarrhea, right? From a toxin, not going to go away if you're eating, if you're not eating. And then we also can have our inflammatory, which is similar to exudative, where that's going to be more from like the inflammation your body's kind of pushing, not absorbing anything because the whole track, um, the whole track is so, in, so inflamed, um, so inflamed too. Um, then we had another question about with acute pancreatitis, do you use elemental or polymetric? The student was saying, I was saying in the Inman, it says to use elemental for acute pancreatitis, but other sources were saying use polymetric would be better. Would you, which one would you use? Um, and so this is one I always talk about when I talk about in the classes acute pancreatitis because there's a difference between real world practice and CER land, which is, yes, it's annoying. And this is why a lot of time in, with my students who work in a specific role or like especially I have a lot of um, students with type 1 diabetes and they're so mad when they get the diabetes questions wrong because there's some things on the exam that you need to answer in like a CDR specific way. And the pancreatitis one in the two feed is one. And you want to think about, okay, well, why would it make sense that element, use elemental for severe acute pancreatitis would make sense? Well, with pancreatitis, right, itis, inflammation of the pancreas, my, fav my favorite organ. Um, so your pancreas, right, Every time I eat, so like before the live today, I had a delicious cheese quesadilla, right? So I eat the cheese quesadilla and my pancreas is like, thanks so much, Dana, delicious. Um, but lipase, amylase, protease, out of the pancreas into the blood. So every time I eat, my pancreas is stimulated. So if I have pancreatitis, number one, there's going to be pain every time I eat. And depending on how severe it is, I might have a deficiency in those enzymes. So that's kind of the first thing of thinking about. Well, elemental would be the most broken down, so I wouldn't need those enzymes. But, you know, the other piece of this is you usually are saying elemental post-pyloric, post-pyloric, so we can kind of sneak past um, the pancreas because, right, post-pyloric is technically past the stomach, but also usually into the jejunum, right? And when we're thinking about the order of the intestines, the J ilium, they're going to come DJ or RD prep, you know, party slash past party, whatever. Um, so 
If we do elemental post-pyloric, we're saying, well, it's not going to stimulate the pancreas because we're bypassing it, and it's going to be a very broken-down formula, so we don't need anything. Now, in real life, I have had many a patient with severe acute pancreatitis. Never have I given them elemental post-pyloric. Number one, right, in the hospital, they love to starve the patients. Number two, placing a post-pyloric tube is difficult. Um, number three, elemental formulas are expensive. So probably not going to be the first one um, that they go to. So this is just something to note where the CDR answer is elemental post-pyloric. That does not mean you cannot give them polymetric. But if you were thinking about, you know, what would be kind of the stages you could give someone polymetric, but if they didn't tolerate tolerate it, you would you know go to semi-elemental or elemental depending on the case. But the more kind of specific and manipulated the formula is, the more expensive it is. All right, next one got a domain three question, um, and this one was asking for examples of like input versus output for in terms of marketing. So when we're thinking about input. Like that's things I'm using to build. So like, for example, if we're going to think about tutoring, right? The input would be like me making the slides, my knowledge going in the slides, my graphic designer, making the new slide decks beautiful, making the Instagram posts, everything. That's going to be input. The output would be things like the course, the study guide, the customer satisfaction. That would all um, that would all be example of the output. So, or like if we we're in food service, it would be the food that is being made too. So you want to be thinking about you know is it if it's being used to build, that's going to be input versus the output is going to be things like that people are buying, things that people are telling you. You know, could also be something a little bit different, like, you know, like a happy atmosphere to all of that could go together too. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes, as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.